0: It's good to see everybody out this evening for our class on angels. Uh, We spoke last week of the angel of the Lord. Hope that was an interesting study to you. Uh, Tonight we're going to talk about the origin of Satan. And uh, this fits into a study of angels because... I'll I'll give the spoiler right now. We're going to conclude or deduce from what we have from the information available to us that Satan was created as an angel. And so that's why his study, a study of his origins anyway, naturally comes up in a class on angels. And so let's get right into it. There's quite a bit to cover, a lot of text to go through. And I'll start with this, just... um, a list of some of the names that have been applied to Satan. I don't have all of them up there, but we could spend a long time talking about the terms designating him uh, as we did with terms designating angels in the Old and New Testaments. But you have uh, Satan up there, of course, which literally means adversary. And it's a very common uh, term. It occurs 27 times in the Old Testament, The Greek equivalent appears 36 times in the New Testament. It can refer to humans uh, or other celestial beings. There's an interesting text in Numbers chapter 22, for example, involving the angel of the Lord, the individual we discussed last week. And he is called, in the Hebrew it's ha-satan, but not because he is... Satan as we usually think of him, but because he presented himself as an adversary to Balaam. And this is in the incident of Balaam's donkey. So if you remember that angel of the Lord that was standing in the way and who would have slain Balaam had he come near and uh, the donkey saved Balaam, he was called an adversary using the same Hebrew term that we get Satan from. And then you have the devil, which is probably the one that's most common to us. It's used 34 times in the New Testament, and it means accuser. Accuser, very similar to Satan and adversary. Uh, Evil one, Matthew 13, 19. Tempter, which is the name Matthew gives him before the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, He's called a number of things in Revelation 12, 9, and 10. Uh, That's where a lot of these terms come from. The destroyer, the deceiver, the great (coughs) dragon, the ancient serpent who leads the whole world astray. All of those from Revelation 12. Uh, There are others you could think of. Beelzebul, the um, lord of dung, which is what he's called in uh, Matthew 12, and uh, many, many other Designations. One thing that I like to point out when we talk about the so-called names of Satan is that you don't really have a proper name in all of these. If you go through, he doesn't have a name like Michael the Archangel or Gabriel. Uh, He is called by titles. And there are two ways you could go with that. I've heard it discussed that maybe one of it, one of the reasons is they didn't want to honor him by giving him a name. You know, a name is an identity. A name honors somebody. It is uh, something positive And the devil is nothing but negative. So maybe that's it. It may be kind of like in Harry Potter where they don't say the bad guy's name for fear of him. But uh, that, that's one theory that's put out. But I think it has more to do with the disrespect and the reproach that's cast upon this individual. He's not worthy of a name. He's not worthy of an identity because he really is just a negation. He doesn't bring anything into the world. He just takes everything out of it. At least that's his goal, destruction. So you don't give someone like that a name. Now, what is his origin? And this is how we're going to start with this. We're going to start by logically eliminating possibilities. So some people have this mistaken impression That Satan is the evil God. And the moment you start thinking of him that way, you've created a polytheistic religion. You have a pantheon of two you have God and you have the devil, but the devil is not divine. And we can show that by pointing out characteristics of divinity and showing that the devil doesn't meet them. First of all, to be divine, you must be eternal. Uh, The scriptures speak of the eternal God, Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. The everlasting God, Deuteronomy 16, 26. Uh, By contrast, we wouldn't be talking about the origin of Satan if he were eternal. But here we are tonight wondering where he came from. That assumes that he came from somewhere. If he came from somewhere, he's not eternal. Secondly, to be divine, you must be omnipotent. What does that mean? Omnipotent. Potency. Powerful. Powerful. All-powerful. And uh, He is not all-powerful. God is. He's called Almighty God, Genesis 17, verse 1. He can do anything, Job 42, verse 2. But look at these things. Uh, 1 John 4, 4, for example. Uh, there, John says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So who would be the one who is in you? Jason, you're a resident scholar on 1 John. Who is in Christ, and who is the one who is in the world? Satan, Satan right? So the one who is in us is greater than, more powerful than, the one who is in the world. Well, if you're omnipotent, no one is more powerful than you, Right? Another passage, Luke 22, 31. This is where Christ takes Peter to the side and he says that Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. So he had to ask Jesus if he could try Peter. There's a lot of questions that come up from that statement, but one thing we know is if he's having to ask permission, then he's not all powerful. Uh, Job Chapter 1, you see similar things in the activity of Satan there, where he's uh, only going so far as the Lord will allow him in tempting Job. In chapter 1, he's not to touch him. He can do anything he wants to, but he's not to touch him. And then in chapter 2, Satan says, If I can take his health away, he'll curse you. And he allows him to take his health. But he can't do anything without the permission of God. Again, that's not looking omnipotent. He's not, allowed us to, he's not allowed to tempt us beyond what we can handle, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And uh, there's a strange passage in Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, where he's rebuked by the angel of the Lord and forced when rebuked by the angel of the Lord, which, as you know, it, the angel of the Lord is God, is Yahweh. When he's rebuked by Yahweh... He has to remain silent. So he is under God's control. OK? So there's another strike on the list. Thirdly, to be divine, you must be omnipresent. Now what does that mean? Everywhere, all at once, right? So God is near at hand and afar off, Jeremiah 23:23. 23, 23. Uh, David writes that beautiful psalm in Psalm 139. Which says, he's saying to God, you are everywhere that I go. I cannot escape your presence. And he's not saying that in frustration. He's glad that God is always with him. But there's nowhere that he can go that God isn't. That's omnipresent. But you don't see that with Satan. Uh, Going back to Job, when the Lord asked Satan where he's been, which is not something you would ask the Lord, where have you been? Well, he's everywhere all at once Uh, the devil says that he has been walking to and fro on the earth well God I realize there's that passage in Genesis where he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day but that is a anthropomorphism to describe his presence in the Garden of Eden he wasn't literally doing that it seems like Satan was going to and fro this place and then that place. He's not omnipresent. And then, what's the next one I'm going to throw up here? Well, I'll push the button so you know. Omniscient. To be divine, you must be omniscient. You must know all things. You know all things. It's impossible for you to forget anything. It's impossible for you to learn anything because you know it all. Oh Lord, Psalm one thirty nine. 139, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me, David says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Hebrews 4.13, There's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So God knows everything about us, everything within us. He knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows all the events that are happening in the world. He knows all history. He knows what will happen. He has foreknowledge. That's what a divine being is knows. That's one of his qualities, one of his essential characteristics. But the devil doesn't possess enough knowledge even for us to resist him. In fact, it is implied that if we know the word of God, then we can resist temptation. That's what Jesus does in Matthew 4 with every temptation. He says, it is written and his knowledge exceeds the knowledge of the devil. And James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James chapter 4 verse 7. And so we can Eliminate the possibility that he's God, a God. He's not divine, which means he has been created. So we start checking created uh, beings off the list. One by one, by process of elimination, we'll arrive at maybe an identification. Everything not included in the class of deity must be the result of creation. All things were made by him all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 3, of Jesus. He's created all things, Paul says in Colossians 1.16, visible and invisible. And then he gives that list of uh, dominions, thrones, powers, authorities that we talked about as identifications of spiritual beings, angelic and demonic. So Christ created all those things. Anything that is not divine has been created, whether it's invisible or visible, spiritual or physical, okay? So, what is he? Well, he must have begun as an angel in heaven because he's not human. He was already present in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, the first humans, appeared. They had not had any children yet when he tempted Eve. And so he, all human beings descend from Adam and Eve. He's made of one blood, all flesh, Acts chapter 17, verse 24. So he's not human. He's not an animal. I know he appears first as an animal, but it's clear that this serpent has an intelligence that is not characteristic of most of the snakes we encounter. You know, this snake is speaking. He's lying. He's blaspheming. He's very wise. He's deceiving Eve and, and Adam and misleading them. So he's clearly not an animal. And then just to be complete, he's not a plant, a fungus, a virus, or bacteria. Uh, again, you could go to the intelligence to eliminate those. And so that leaves only one possibility. That he, is, that he was created as an angel. That makes the Genesis 3 story possible because as we saw in Job 38, 6 and 7, it's just one passage, but it is an inspired passage. It says that the angels were there at the creation of man and they gloried at the creation of the world. And so they were created before the world was created. Naturally, they would have been around when Adam and Eve came on the scene. So he could have been there because of that, if he were an angel. So he was created an angel. Do we know any more about his position as an angel? Well, we don't know a whole lot, and we want to be careful here not to go beyond what is written here, but it seems like maybe he was an angel who had the role of, testing men. Maybe there was some kind of role for angels in that regard. In Job, it certainly seems like he's appearing with the sons of God for that purpose. I found this one man, and I think I can test him to the point of cursing God. And God says, no, my servant Job won't give up on me. And so there's this test. And again, it raises a lot of questions But it appears that he was created to have some role connected to the spiritual formation of human beings through testing. And then he drifted from the intended role and began using his skills to tempt human beings uh, toward their destruction and to draw them away from God. Which is precisely what you see him doing in the wilderness with Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4. The tempter. So he's identified with this skill that he has in tempting people, in trying them in order to destroy them. At some point, he must have decided to rebel against heaven and seize the world throne for himself and enlist as many creatures as possible in his insurrection. Jesus speaks of the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41, which I believe also lends itself to the case we're making for his being created an angel. I mean, why would angels be hanging out with this guy? So he and the fallen angels are categorized together. He must have pulled several of them away with him. One question that often comes up is, did God create evil or did God create Satan as an evil being? And I don't think there's any Bible passage that makes that case. In fact, in Genesis 1, When God looked at what He created, verse 31 says that He saw that it was what? It was good. All things created by God were created good. But angels, like human beings, have free will. They can make choices. And when you're able to make choices, that makes possible sin. But Satan brought sin into the world. God did not create sin. He did not create sin. Uh, the devil as evil so he began as good and now is evil so it follows that he's a free moral agent that makes his own choices and he and all the angels differ from us in that their evil choices are irrevocable Now we've talked about this before but I want to go back to this passage in Hebrews Hebrews chapter 2 verse 16 surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In context, he's not just talking about the physical descendants of Abraham, but those who are descendants of Abraham by faith, those who have the faith of Abraham. He's talking about Christians, those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who have obeyed the gospel. These are helped by the Son of God, but not the angels. Have angels sinned? Yes. What happens to them? Well, there's a few passages on that. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, literally to Taurus, which is not the usual word for hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's part of a sentence. But in there you have the fact that some angels are fallen angels, and they were not given a chance at redemption. They had one shot, and these that Peter are talking about blew it, and they were cast out into Tartarus, into hell, where there are chains of gloomy darkness. Jude says something very similar in Jude 6. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling... He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So it sounds like on judgment day, just as all of us will appear before the judgment seat of God, these angels will be judged and they will enter into final judgment and they will go to hell which has been prepared for them. Again, that's Matthew 25, 41, which talks about the devil and his angels The context there is the parable of the goats and the sheep where Christ says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the place prepared for the devil and his angels. The second death, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. He says, he seems to imply it wasn't uh, prepared for us. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But since human beings have followed these fallen angels in rebelling against heaven and breaking God's commandments, those who are not redeemed by Jesus will join the devil and his angels in their fate. John said the devil sinned from the beginning. I think this is important a passage from 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil... For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Uh, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So anyone who sins, hopefully you can see this from John, anyone who sins is following in the steps of the devil, which makes him the father of sin, the first sinner. And that goes back to what we are saying a while ago, that God did not create sin. He did not create the devil as an evil being. He gave him choice, and he chose to rebel against heaven, and thus sinned at the beginning. At the beginning of what? At the beginning of transgression. He was the first sinner. Uh, Jesus calls him the father of lies in John eight forty four. Same idea. He's the first liar. He created lying. He created sin. It's all come from him. What was his sin? People want to know this. And, uh, you know, we just don't have a lot of information on it. I go back to Jude 6, and it says that certain angels did not stay within their own position of authority, which sounds like rebellion. Perhaps they wanted to be God and not submit to God's authority. Uh, it also says they left their proper dwelling. Other translations, I believe the King James says domain. Does that mean they left heaven? They came down to earth when they should not have? Does it mean they rebelled against God's authority? You know, These are things that people have been discussing and speculating about for ages and never have come to a conclusion, and they never will. Uh, it's just hard to... Hard to understand these things. A lot of us have um, Milton's Paradise Lost in our heads, not because we actually read it in high school, but just because it's so influential, we don't realize it's crept into our minds. But in Paradise Lost, you have this war between God and his angels and the devil and his angels. And we picture that happening before the creation of the world. The Bible never says that happened. Uh, We're going to look at some passages that we often interpret in the light of Paradise Lost and look at them just objectively and challenge some of the interpretations that we often walk away with. Uh, Another thing in Paradise Lost is this idea that the devil was angry about God choosing the Son of God, Jesus, to be the Anointed One, the King. I have a problem with that theory because Jesus is God. So, you know, I know there are different personalities, but it would have never crossed the devil's mind that uh, he would serve the role that Jesus served. I don't, I don't think it would have, knowing what little we know about him. Uh, there's another idea, I think, that's also in Paradise Lost or that's been floated around, that he got angry when we were created, when human beings were created, and He saw that God was turning his attention to human beings, sending his son to die for us, giving us the gospel. Those are all, that's all speculation. It might be an explanation of not staying within your position of authority, but it it doesn't have any weight or bearing on what the Bible says. Uh, Another passage that's, I think, more helpful than Jude 6 is... Buried here in the qualifications of an elder, for an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, that an elder must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It sounds to me that part of this sin was pride or conceit. And that could be something that led him to rebel against God's authority but pride is the root, really, I think, of all sin. So pride could lead you to do just about anything. We can only guess at what he did. We just know that it was sinful, and he lost his position in heaven over what he had done. What I want to do next is I want to go through some passages that are often used to describe this fall from heaven and examine examine them in new light and uh, try to seek a better understanding of them. So the first one I want to go to is Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Isaiah 14, 12. I've just put the one verse up, but I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Now as you read this, there are going to be some points in which you say, that sounds exactly like the fall of Satan. But it's important that you start in verse 3. Look at what verse 3 says. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against, what, is, what does it say? The king of Babylon. Babylon. Now, some might say, well, that's symbolic. But (laughs) chapter 13 is all about the judgment of Babylon. And in Isaiah's day, Babylon, the true Babylon, was a real problem. This isn't in John's day, and we're not reading the book of Revelation. This is in Isaiah's day when Babylon was looming large over Jerusalem. And Babylon would eventually, after Isaiah's day, about 150 years after Isaiah... Babylon would destroy the temple in the city of Jerusalem. So there's no reason to read this figuratively. It's not symbolic. This is a taunt against the king of Babylon. Now let's skip a few verses. Uh, Go down to verse 12. This is part of the taunt. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Now who has the King James? What does the King James say there, Bob? Lucifer, that's the devil's name, right? Well, Lucifer is a Latin word that in the Latin Vulgate, translated by Jerome, was just carried over into the King James Version instead of being translated. Uh, but Lucifer in Latin has, something, has some meaning like day star, bright one, shining one, something like that. Uh, so, the, the English translation of Lucifer is Daystar. It's not the name for Satan. People have taken this and applied this to Satan and then said, okay, so Satan's name is Lucifer. And it sounds ominous because all our lives, that has been Satan's name, but biblically, there's no, nothing in the context that should tell us this is Satan. Keep reading. How you are cut down to the ground... You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Well, that sounds like the devil trying to take God's throne. But keep reading. You are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit. It just gets worse as you keep reading. But uh, this is a man... Who was killed this isn't an angel who was simply cast down some of the language here like in verses 12 and 13 sound angelic but there are many comparisons within biblical texts and contemporary non biblical texts that use this kind of language all the time to talk about the downfall of a great ruler rulers were often thought of as stars and when they fall they were thought of as falling stars very common language in the literature of that day. And so I don't believe Isaiah 14 belongs in the discussion of the origins of Satan, except to show that it doesn't have anything to do with it, like we're doing tonight. Also, go to Ezekiel chapter 28. This is very similar, Ezekiel 28. Uh, I have verse 16 up here, but again, I want to start out in verse 11 to get the context. Look at what Ezekiel says. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. That was a city. Yes, chapter 28. I love that. <laughs> the king of Tyre. I was going to go ahead and let him read for us. Uh... Now, verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings on your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. This one's a little leans a little more towards the angels than Isaiah, right? He's called a garden cherub. Sounds a lot like Satan, except he never says this has anything to do with Satan. He does use language, he calls him a cherub twice. He talks about him being in Eden, which we know the devil was in Eden. So the most you can say about this is he took the story of the downfall of Satan and compared it with what's going to happen to the king of Tyre but you go back to the context and what it is, is a taunt against the king of Tyre. So perhaps he's reflecting back on what happened to Satan, but it's not directed at Satan at this time. Okay, let's go to the New Testament. This is one that probably you were thinking about. Luke chapter 10, the uh, limited commission after the 72 returned from the limited commission, the disciples who took the gospel message around Judea. They were rejoicing. Rejoice, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And people will go here and they'll say, well, Jesus is remembering when Satan was cast down. Uh, now this is translated properly Uh, some translations say falling like lightning from heaven but uh, the aorist tense is a past tense point action I saw Satan fall and it wasn't that he was lightning from heaven but he compared it to the way lightning strikes the ground he saw Satan's downfall The best way to interpret this is to say, in your casting out demons, you are spelling the downfall of Satan. You are foreshadowing the downfall of Satan. He wasn't giving us the origin of Satan here. You look at the context here. He's not giving us a lesson like we have tonight on where did Satan come from. He's just making a comment that in your casting out the demons... I saw the downfall of Satan. Now, you can take it more literally if you like, but um, it has to fit into the context. The last one I'll look at is Revelation 12, 7 through 9. Revelation 12, and this is the, the symbolic war in heaven. This is where we get all those names that we had up on the screen a moment ago. War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. I'm going to stop reading right there. Okay, is this the story of Satan's fall? A lot of people look at it and they say, it fits. Does it fit? Had, here's the first question. Had Satan fallen by the days of Adam and Eve? It had already happened, right? Because he was Satan in the Garden of Eden. So his downfall occurred before Adam and Eve, which was way before the crucifixion, right? Go back to verse 11. How did they conquer him in this war? By the blood of Of the Lamb so is this and keep in mind this is in the book of Revelation so every sentence is full of symbols is this the story of Satan's downfall or is this symbolic of what the blood of Jesus does to sin and to the work of Satan which tries to destroy us I'll let you be the judge These four texts are often used to show, well, here's the origin story of Satan. And I I just think we stretch them a little bit too much. At the very most, you could say that they all borrow from an origin story that we can only guess at to illustrate other things. And we can't know for sure that there was this war in which Satan and his angels Fell from heaven in a in a very literal way. We know he was cast down, we know the angels were cast down, and they're under judgment at this time. Uh, So I'm quickly running out of time here. I'd like to get done with this and move on to another. Let me let me power through a few things here to give you some things to think about as we close. For thousands of years. Satan was called the prince of this world, John 14, 30, the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. But Jesus came to destroy his work and set us free. And so there's some very important texts that we need to look at along that line, starting in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. We went to this when we were talking about biblical terminology for angels, and you'll recognize some of these terms from that discussion, I hope. In Colossians 2.15, reading about the crucifixion, we read that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those are two terms that are used of celestial beings. They could refer to demons or angels. Here the context shows us this is talking about demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So at the cross, something happened to the devil and his angels go to John chapter 12 look at verse 31 Jesus says now and this is the the this is the, the hour had come for him he says now is the judgment of this world Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And he goes on to talk about his crucifixion, saying, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So he's going to cast the ruler out. And then uh, there are other similar passages in John, but I want to skip over to Hebrews chapter 2, where we were a minute ago talking about who gets help, not the angels, but the offspring of Abraham. Let's go back to Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he, this is Christ, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the point I want to get across here at the end is that the devil's personal work is finished any hope that he thought he had of defeating God by tearing us down was destroyed he was cast out when Jesus died on the cross Jesus's death turned into victory and uh, the demonic world all his powers were put on a leash I believe this is the what's going on whenever you read in Revelation 20 that uh, the serpent is thrown into a bottomless pit. I think he is on a chain now. Now, Peter tells us to beware of him, 1 Peter 5.8. The only influence he has over us is his lies. It's not the same as it was in the days of Job. It's not the same as it was in the days of Christ where the demon possessions were Coming and Christ was driving out the demons. We're in a different time post crucifixion where the devil doesn't have the power he once had and he doesn't have the freedom he once enjoyed. But his lies are still very, very effective, so much so that he's like a cornered animal, a ravening wolf, a roaming lion seeking someone to devour. And it's very easy to believe these lies. He's very good at it. He's been doing it since the beginning. He put the lies out a long time ago, and they're only growing and flourishing. And so the truth is what sets us free, because it sets us free from the power the devil has and gives us the, the revelation of eternal life. All right, I'm going to stop there. I... I know you probably didn't want me to go that quickly through that end part, but this is a class on angels, not on the devil. And if I'm not careful, I'll just spend the rest of time talking about the devil. And who wants to talk about the devil anyway? He's already had enough of our time. So next week we'll move on to a different topic regarding the angels.